You know, changing to more of a decentralized type business has allowed us to evolve the way we think about our people. And it was certainly a, an inward look at myself at the way I was being a leader to, to the people that worked here at EPI and, and really changing the way I thought about them. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. With me today is Scott Snyder, president of the Exit Planning Institute, which we'll call EPI. He leads EPI's global team and is responsible for the strategic direction of the organization, along with overseeing the company's operations and chapter development. Since joining EPI in 2013, Scott has expanded the organization regionally, nationally, and globally, providing a transformational educational experience to advisors from all specialties across the globe. He's a nationally recognized industry leader, growth specialist, and lifetime entrepreneur. In fact, two of Scott's biggest talents are market penetration and rapid growth strategies. He launched his first business, a landscape maintenance company, at 17, which he grew exponentially, winning accounts from the larger competition and establishing notoriety in the local marketplace. At 24, he sold to a strategic buyer his first exit and joined forces with his father Chris's private exit planning and M&A firm, Aspire Management who at the time was looking to dominate Northeast Ohio's exit planning space. Within one year, Scott took Aspire from an unknown startup to one of the most influential boutique advisory firms in Cleveland, citing over 13 publication pickups, a full client book, and a centers of influence network that included every specialty from across the exit planning ecosystem. With their passion for business strategy and serving owners and advisors alike, Scott and Chris purchased EPI, introduced the value acceleration methodology, wrote an award-winning book, and effectively increased the business size by 10x. Scott thrives on helping advisors learn how to educate clients, achieve market distinction, and deliver real results. In 2018, Scott released his first book, Fishing for Value, a short story of succession planning, business growth, and exit, which is a case study ebook that helps owners and advisors tackle common problems that arise when an entrepreneur recognizes the transition is approaching on the horizon. Scott, that's a lot for a young man. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I guess I've been uh, hearing that. I guess it seems like I've been pretty busy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, it, you sure have been pretty busy, yeah. but but all successful entrepreneurs are. So there you go. Well, thank you. So yeah. what would you say is the biggest problem that EPI solves? Sure. I think that the biggest problem we solve is that uh, business owners have very successful companies, right? I think year over year. But what they find is that when they go to sell, they don't have something that is significant, meaning that it won't sell for what they think it's worth or what they want it to be worth or frankly, what they need it to be worth. So where EPI comes in is we help them take those companies from successful to significant, harvesting the value out of that company and, and, and getting a, a really fulfilling exit. So what exactly are you doing to bring that to fruition, that that, they're, that the exit is actually what they believe it's worth? Yeah, sure. So one back, you kind of heard in my bio a little bit, I, I teamed up with my father, Chris, because I thought at the time back, this would have been in 2010, 11, and 12, after I was selling my company and in my own transition, I felt that he had a process. He had take, taken the original concepts from EPI, these philosophies and concepts of exit planning, and put them in a methodical framework that allowed to the, the business owner particularly to create action, to actually create results, the how-to. And... Um, the, the way in which we're helping owners go from success to significance is through the value acceleration methodology, which has really helped and, and kind of powered by a really sound and a really holistic uh, uh, professional advisory team. I think the one big thing that I found during those two or three years in 2010 to 12 is that many owners, and, and frankly, really including myself in my own exit, didn't really have a holistic-minded team. So when Dad and I got together, I said, Dad, I think we need to kind of flip the model rather than 
consult with business owners directly. Let's help educate a whole marketplace on what it really takes to to align these three elements, business, personal, and financial, and have a a very fulfilling and and highly valuable exit through the value acceleration methodology. So the way in which you kind of get to that purpose, if you will, is really through the advisory community and and, and helping them be better advisors to business owners. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular size of company that is the sweet spot for this? Yeah, I think, you know, we tend to focus on uh, the small to lower middle market companies. So anywhere from, I would say, like a million dollars of revenue all the way up to 150 or 200 million. And I have seen it work well in some of the startups, right? So a lot of the companies that are kind of mm-hmm. being built to sell, if you look at some of the younger generations, they kind of have that mindset in that techie mm-hmm. kind of world. Following mm-hmm. that methodology with with always the end in mind, I think just builds a, a more sound and, and, and better business overall. Mm-hmm. And and do these companies, especially if we're looking at like, let's say a million dollar company, sure. right? In, in the smaller end of that, do they have a minimum number of employees? Could they be a sole practitioner? Yeah. Is it is it B2B? Is it B2C? Is it all over the map? Yeah, it's no, I think it's all over the map. I think it's I think it's all of the above, regardless of I think there is to your point in your initial question, I do think that there's a revenue threshold or, or a range. But within mm-hmm. that, I think it's like industry agnostic. I think that employees, it doesn't, right. it doesn't really matter. I think any owner within that lower middle market or small market that's really looking to build a business that's independent of them and mitigate some of the risks and then have a better balanced life as an entrepreneur, uh, I think that is who the methodology really speaks to. Interesting. Okay. So, so you know, you, you've just bootstrapped this whole business. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. you and Chris, um, has there been, was there ever any thought to taking institutional capital to growing it beyond sure. where it is? And is that, would that even be necessary? Yeah, I think it, you know, it's more, it's more relevant to me than ever before. And I, I, I maybe get to that as we started, you got to remember EPI was kind of in its infancy when we, when we really bought it, founded in 2005, mm-hmm. we bought it in 2012. So it had a good mm-hmm. run. It only had 120 mm-hmm. certified exit planning advisors, and it really only had two or three employees when we bought it. And the people mm-hmm. that originally started it were also advisors. They were investment bankers, so they're buying and mm-hmm. selling companies. Right. And so, yeah, we, we built it you know, from the ground up and, to your point, kind of bootstrapped it all along the way. So we have a you know, pretty clean and sound balance sheet, and we're kind of you know, perhaps blessed, if you will, to, to kind of to, to not have much debt in our business. However, um, we have more recently to try to, we're trying to get to 10,000 members. That's kind of our big, fat, audacious goal, if you will. And perhaps we're almost And where, where are you currently, Chris? Yeah, we're just over 4,000 SEPAs in the market today. And we want to get to 10,000 by the end of 2024. Or 2024. So we're Oof, about, you know, two years away from, from that, getting That's aggressive. Getting. And, you know, obviously, particularly in today's world too, just the different forms of, you know, because we're a professional education company, we've obviously made a big pivot to an online platform mm-hmm. and different ways to advance the SEPA and the non-SEPA, right? Like, how do we get to advisors all across the United States, whether they become certified or not? The real goal is to have owners and advisors all educated within this methodology that was created so that we could all work together better. So I think that some of the technology that we need, some of the people that we need, we've been, we've had thought about you know, getting some institutional money for that. More so, why, why I smile when you ask me that question is that what's interesting about our story, although we're the ex- exit planning educators, we're also a family, bu- we're also a family business and perhaps unlike right. other family businesses, there's no gifting situation going on in the Snyder family. I had to buy my way in. So I own 49% of EPI, <laughs> dad owns 51, uh, but dad is also working through his transition. So what I'm faced with today is over those next two or three years, how do I buy dad's shares? So if dad wants to exit and have a, a maybe a quicker liquidity event, doesn't really want to hold paper, doesn't want to really finance the deal, mm-hmm. I, in fact, mm-hmm. might have to take on some debt so I can get dad the value of his of his shares. So mm-hmm. that's why I smile when you ask me that question, because dad and I speak of this quite often. And so we're thinking about you know, how do we bring that on? Do I bring on new equity partners? Do I sell a sh- do I sell some of my shares and maybe take a private equity route? Do I buy, you know, what and, and what's my vision and mission which is far from far from, you know, being done. So uh so yeah, it, we've been lucky or or maybe even uh, frankly, I would say prepared to not have to take on much debt during our growth phases. We've always earmarked 
at least a third of our our profits always go back into the business to a new initiative. And if it didn't, we'd pull it out and reinvest it some some other places. But for the most part, every other year, we're making a a significant investment. Right now, we're actually going to be debuting our, uh, what we're calling our digital ecosystem. So a new Mm -hmm. website, e-commerce platform, all kinds of stuff, which was really not finance. It was just money put back into the company. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your membership, your, your SEPAs. Um, you're doing the certification yourself, correct? For them? Yeah. Yeah, we are. It's administered by our company, but brought, it's taught by about 16 different faculty members. Okay. And, you know, I, I, I'm always very conflicted about certifications, right? I mean, you know, it, it, it establishes a minimum level of knowledge. However, that doesn't mean somebody knows what they're doing in practice. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Just because some right? people, yeah, I would agree. I think people, you know, you have a few letters after your name doesn't necessarily call you an expert. Exactly. So, uh, you know, at least for me, you know, somebody says, oh, you know, I'm a certified coach. Really? What did you take one course? That doesn't make, that doesn't make you any good at what you're doing. Yeah. Right. So my question is, how do you, or do you even, does that come up where you have to teach people how to handle that? Or are they already coming in with experience? Or what do you do about the people who have no experience and get a certification, but still don't, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hire them. Let's put sure. it that way, right? Yeah, I think that's something you have to combat, especially as you're growing rapidly, right? From 120 mm-hmm. members 10 years ago to 4,000 today. So, yeah. and as you go from 4,000 to 10,000, you're absolutely right. Credibility of the designation means a lot. So there are mm-hmm. pre- prerequisites that we require, right? That we we have coming into it that has to showcase, okay. you know, knowledge and experience in working directly with business owners. So there's not really many people, if really any people that come in super cold and saying, look, I'm either trying to transition my entire career or, you know, and and honestly, some of the strategic questions that we have at EPI are for some of the younger folks that are just coming into their careers in professional advisory. The hot spot to be right now is with business owners, right? It's how do we really help business owners grow better companies and sell them? But perhaps Mm -hmm. a question for another time. But so most of the people are coming that are are pretty, I would say, veteran in working within their specific expertise with, with business owners. They're attorney, an accountant, financial advisor, an M&A, an, an M&A advisor that have worked directly with owners. Beyond that, you know, we go through, you know, you go through about 30 something hours of training by coming through the SEPA program, passing the test and, and doing some case study work along the way. And then you advance yourself. So we have different products and programs that they require to kind of go through after what we call our beyond SEPA experience, where it's all about implementation and learning. Because regardless of if you're a, a veteran advisor that's worked many years with business owners, learning a whole new methodology and approach with an owner uh, is certainly something that it needs time to kind of mature uh, and evolve. So there's a beyond SEPA path that we take. You know, we have think tanks every week. We have webinars that they can take. We have deeper dive academy courses. We have a big annual conference. And what I think you'll find getting into the EPI community mm-hmm. is that we're kind of a culture, and maybe it stems from being a professional education company, but we're a culture of learning. Like literally one of the core values is perf- purposeful growth for our, for our company. And I think that bleeds down into our customers and our partners that participate inside of the community as well, that we're kind of always evolving our, 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 our thinking. So, but nonetheless, yeah, I think as somebody grows, regardless of uh, designation, the quality and the integrity of the program and the customer become, I think, quite, quite critical. The worst thing that we could happen, Carol, is obviously having people go out there and advise an owner and say, this guy doesn't, this guy or gal doesn't really know what they're talking about, right? That's definitely not what we want. No, of course not. So, you know, as you said, you started with, you know, how many ever, uh, 150 members, yeah. you've grown it to 4,000 over the last 10 years, and now you have very aggressive numbers over the next, you know, two, two and a half years, right? Sure. To, to gain that by another 6,000. What's your strategy to do that? Yeah, so I think it really boils down to, I guess, I guess, let's start at the high level, maybe get a little bit more specific. Mm-hmm. To me, in the professional education space, in the credentialing space, in the professional advisory space, I think that there's three things that we need to, to have our partners or customers experience. One, call it we call it experiences, people, and innovation. We have to have transformational educational experiences that evolve the way people mm-hmm. are thinking so that they can get to a better place with their business owners. 
We need to be able to, given the collaborativeness, if you will, of the exit planning profession, we need to be able to surround them with high quality people that fill the other holes on the team that they don't have. So if I'm a financial advisor and I really I need an estate planning attorney, I need, I want to be able to speak the same language, have the same framework, mm-hmm. uh, and be able to have EPI kind of build that community for me. And last, I think that in a in a in a world that's ever evolving, we need to stay ahead of the game and be creative and innovative, and find creative and innovative solutions to help owners exit, to help them have hybrid exits, uh, to help engage them in the first place. And so I think if we kind of possess those three core capabilities, if you will. We need to be able to then implement that down into the, you know, into the community and grow. So, uh, you know, it is not only growing our credentialing program, but it's also growing some of the, uh, I would say, other advancing education that we have through our new EPI Academy program, which just actually Mm -hmm. last week won uh, an award for an innovative learning management system uh, and through our summit, which brings people back together, something that over the past couple of years, a lot of people haven't been able to do. So I think that focusing in on those three kind of core products, Summit, Academy, and and the credentialing program really allow us to scale uh, in the way that we need to with having these three capabilities in mind, experiences, people, and innovations. And that's that's kind of the focus and and has been for the last maybe couple of years. Okay. So uh, back to, you know, the client size, you know, up to, let's say about 150 to 200 million. Are are people selling a thing? or a service or, you know, because I, I, you know, I think, I think about, you know, consulting companies, for example, right. And, you know, and, and the value is within the owner's head, (laughs) right. Right. It's that service is between their ears, the expertise. So are most of these people just selling a thing? Selling me or service that is tangible, like you really said, a dry cleaner, which is a service. Yes, the businesses themselves. Yes. So it's all it's I think it's all across the board, right? We have people that represent like veterinarian practices that comes to mind because it's super hot right now. Mm -hmm. Doctors offices Hmm. like physicians, law practices, things of that nature. Then you have the more traditional. I think it depends kind of where you're at in the United States, like up here. And obviously the Midwest, we got the traditional manufacturing companies. We just did a, a case study, actually, that debuts at the end of this quarter all around a third generation manufacturing company. They're celebrating their 50th anniversary this year and it's going Mm. into the third generation. And that person that we did the case study on is a a 28 year old that's been working there since he was in high school. He did leave and go to college, but every summer he came back to continue to work. And his grandfather is the founder had just passed away, but a, a very specific example of a traditional manufacturing company. So yeah, I mean, it could be a sole kind of practitioner or it could be a huge manufacturing company that's doing a, 50 or $60 million and, and has 300 something employees. So mm-hmm. it's kind of all over the map. I would say that to your example of what's in between the ears, right? In, in the brain for the sole practitioner, uh, there's a lot of goodwill. And I think it's actually probably even more important that that person becomes, instead of this kind of lifestyle business, changing their mindset over the years to becoming more of a value creator type company. So that it's not just within that head. I, I just, I'm building a house right now and it's a very timely example. I was talking to the engineer or the surveyor that's doing mm-hmm. the topography graph or map for my property. Where's a garage going? All this kind of stuff. And he said, Scott, this project would t- typically take me two weeks, but now I'm eight weeks booked out. I'm like, oh, like, you know, like this totally delays the process. Sure. But of he said, yeah, you're the exit planning guy. He said, I did some research on, on you before we came to the property to walk. And he said, you know, I'm 70 years old. I'm still working my business. I tried to exit three years ago. Didn't work. Then the pandemic hit. I used to have 10 guys a part of my firm, and now I'm down to three. He said, I lost about half of them to retirement. So during the pandemic, when we were slow, they were all at retirement age, so they just retired. Then the problem is none of the younger folks actually want to become land surveyors anymore. You know, so, <laughs> so he said that finally he's hired a, a 25-year-old guy out of college that is a surveyor and getting his, the remainder of his certifications. We had a similar kind of question and, and conversation around, you know, how do I get to transition this business? Because although I really like this kid and he, I think he's really here to stay, he's not going to have the money to buy me out by the, in the business. Next five sure. years. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's right. another problem. But yeah, mm-hmm. nonetheless, I think it works for, you know, that gentleman who owns the surveying company all the way up to the, the younger guy that is third generation in manufacturing, though I think different levels and nuances and, and, and difficulties nonetheless. 
Yeah. And, you know, you hit on something uh, I think really important, Scott, which is, you know, the 70 something year old guy who had 10 employees and, you know, half of them left at the pandemic because they were right around retirement age. This happened with many, many, many companies around the United States and I'm sure abroad as well. But, you know, the interest, but what that hits me is he never did any succession planning. (laughs) He never did. So he's like, hey, man, I was doing this. And that is so so critical. I know. Isn't it crazy? He's like, it never really, he's a typical owner, right? He's a typical yeah. business owner. He said, I'm just going to exit this thing, right? But then what he realized is like, well, I, you know, I'm kind of dependent on the income from my company. So when I go to retire, like, I, I don't know, I guess I'm going to have to get a job. He said this, he's like, Scott, I guess I'm going to get a part-time job. Like, I'm not going to be truly retired. I'm going to get a part-time job driving the uh, car rental bus at the airport, you know, two days a week. He's like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, right. So I might as well just right. stick in my business so I can't work anymore. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I'm also like 70 and he's like, I'm slowing down physically. And That's honestly, right. like I've done this since I've been 25 years old. So he's like, you know, I've been doing this 60 years. Like I just, I want to do something different, spend a little mm-hmm. bit more, more time with my grandkids. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm a little torn. And I, you know, there's a solution for him. But nonetheless, if he, if I would have met him, just even five or, or or 10 years ago, he likely would have been in a very different spot. But he's a, a great example of that type of transition, but also a great example of like stuff that's within his within his right. head, that, that kind of craft and talent that's kind of like a one and done non-recurring revenue type solution. Like I'm going to build my next, I'm going to build this home and it's going to likely be the house that I die in. So I likely won't ever use him again. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, I think it, or per, he's like many owners that we see in that market that we're talking about. Nonetheless, yeah, yeah. So when I was introducing you, uh, I mentioned that your first your first uh, business was when you were still in high school at seventeen. You started a like a lot of kids do, a right? A lawn mowing and landscaping business, right? I mean yeah. the the kid that's been taking care of my yard he just went off to college, yeah. and now his brother's taking it, and his brother's taking it yeah, over. His brother's right? taking it on, yeah. Mini success. That's right, because right he's, he's still in high school. Yeah. <laughs> so you know they've got they've got guys working for them. You know it's it's fantastic, um, and you know you sold it. Um, seven years later, and you said you grew it exponentially. I mean, like, how does that happen with a kid? Like, where did you learn that? That is such a good question. Was it innate? Did you read a book? (laughs) Did you you figure it out? Yeah, no. So I think that, so yeah, I I know how I did it. I, I, uh, so one was always good mentors. So obviously my dad was in this business, right? He was a big price waterhouse consultant and had worked his way all the way down through lower middle market, the the owners that we've been talking about Mm -hmm. to small family business. And so you know, I've always had a great mentor in, in, in dad and I've always ran my business, even though we didn't call it back then value acceleration, what we call it today, we ran it with his methodology and thought process in mind. Sure. But I've always been very, I'd like to think that I've always been very coachable and always been like very curious. So taking on, you know, uh, taking on a bunch of different knowledge and, and kind of spitting it back out in my own way and, and, and trying to morph my, my, my own path. And then just like a lot of dedication and time. I don't know if it's a regret, but I certainly did not have like your typical teenage or even in your 20s lifestyle, right? I, uh, you know, I can remember, you know, I was an average student in school, not because I was an idiot, because I just didn't apply myself because for the most time, if I, I started to, I actually started that business at the desk in my geometry class. So I was a janitor before that. And I was like, man, this is getting old. So I I think I want to, you know, I'm just going to mow lawns. It's easy. I can make it happen. And then, you know, Flash forward, you know, you have like a dozen employees, seven trucks, like a pretty large operation. But then when I, you know, I went to college for a year, primarily me and my parents laugh about it now because I was the first entrepreneur in the family. And they're like, dude, you got to go to college. Like you're not going to mow lawns the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So um, I reluctantly did. And, you know, I went there and, you know, I was, I can remember sitting under my lofted bed at my desk with my headphones on while my dorm, dorm, you know, or my roommate was like, you know, playing video games and, and, and hanging out and missing class. And um, so I think like a lot of dedication and a lot of dedication work and then kind of typical entrepreneur story, right? Like trial and error. Like I didn't have like a unique product that I manufactured, like right. the company that I had. So I knew how to work mm-hmm. a lawnmower, but I had no idea how to quote, estimate, how to actually appropriately mow a lawn. So I ended up dropping out of college my, my first year at a more traditional college and going to horticulture school for a year. So I did that and learned kind of learned a lot of the technic technicalities. So when a property manager was walking their property and said, Hey Scott, like, why is my tree dying? I didn't look at them and say, Well, I'll have to come back and 
I mean, Google that answer for you. I actually knew it. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I did some investment there, but kind of kind of what I said earlier, it's, it was a for me. It's always been about purposeful growth. It's about challenging mm-hmm. yourself. It's about dedication yeah. and hard work, and it's about continued learning and, and having mentors. And I think that allowed us to not only scale our business but actually fulfill the stuff that we were selling mm-hmm. as well. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that uh, you know, if I yeah, that's probably probably my my journey. Yeah. Got it. So you've got 16 employees, you're privately owned. What's the benefit? I mean, do you give them stock? Is there any value for them to be with you? Yeah, I think absolutely. Right. So, you know, we have a culture of value acceleration. So the, you know, kind of the bigger question too, that kind of comes from this is what we get a lot is how do you, so how do you, uh, train your employees with the mindset to build a company of value, not just focused on maybe their role or even I think what most employees are are naturally concentrated on, what it boils down to is income generation. How do we have profitable revenue? And so for us, it's about income and value. And so, yeah, we do. We have, I think it's part of our culture. So we have profit sharing uh, programs. We have incentive-based mm-hmm. programs for, for value creation type projects. But I think it's also culture-wise, right? We are a company that took the Google thing and said, look, uh, I think Google is one of the first companies to uh, instate unlimited vacation. So we have things like unlimited vacation here, which makes it a little bit difficult in a 16-person company. But nonetheless, I think it's also a benefit that's allowed us to grow. I think most people here have like a, a really good work-life balance, which I think by replenishing themselves away from the office actually makes mm-hmm. them a lot more productive when they're here. Uh, I and agree. I'd like to think that Chris and I as owners really relinquish control really trying to build a business that is independent of us and, and build kind of a, at least have some concepts of a decentralized type organization where it, we're really empowering the the teams to make their own decisions along the way and be able to feel a little bit more like an owner, even though you might, might not be. And I think that with those and maybe some of the core values in mind, I think it makes a very unique and interesting place to, to work and there's not a chance in hell that we could grow the company that we have over the 10 years that we've owned it without unbelievably talented and, and great people that like the opportunity and also, but also like rolling up their sleeves and kind of having going in it with us. Right. Tell me a little bit about the mistakes you've made over the past, you know, 10 years. I can tell you, you know, when people ask me this question now, kind of coming out of the pandemic, it was, it was being almost like, okay, being stagnant. like not mm-hmm. having this, not challenging yourself mm-hmm. to continuously evolve and innovate. And I can tell you that the pandemic helped us realize that our, 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 all of our products at the time, if you rewound or kind of rewind to, to 2019, were delivered in an in-person fashion, particularly take our certification, our credentialing program. You would fly into a, to a, a to a, you know, a, 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 typically a university where we would host an in-person program for a week. And not only if you think about it, I didn't know it then, right? But if you think about it now, not only is that basically not scalable, right? So if I want to be adding 2,000 plus uh, credential holders each year, I'm going to have to, I'm going to be flying all over the country. And at the time, I was already traveling 220 days out of the year. So I can remember sitting at our executive retreat in 2019, thinking about getting to 10,000 and saying, I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to build that model, let alone a profitable model, because now I got to pay all these people to fly everywhere, all the faculty members, all this stuff. Right, right. Quite at the time, and maybe being an entrepreneur, like, we'll find the way, but we didn't know at the time how. And, and I think that once the pandemic hit, we had all these people that had signed up for our credential with no way to deliver it. So we had to pivot to this online platform that we wanted to rep- replicate the in-person as much as we can with the collaborative group work. And, and some of the other networking opportunities that, that comes along with having this diverse group of advisors together. And if I, the most recent lesson I learned there was just kind of being kind of cool and okay with like the current way of doing business and not ever, mm-hmm. you know, not ever thinking, thinking forward in terms of like strategy and how do I get there, but not necessarily thinking about, okay, how does the business scale and warp? Is there a different and better way to deliver the education? And, and the pandemic has allowed us to continue continuously evolve that. And I would also say managing people. I think that one of the things I really learned through the pandemic is a lot more empathy, became way more emotionally intelligent uh, and became way more in tune to, I think, uh, the way people want to be led 
uh, today, and particularly with the, the newer generations, right? I think that a person that's 45 or 35 or 25 wants to be led in a different way than somebody that is 60, 65, mm-hmm. or 70. Right. And it's not bad or good. It's just different. And, mm-hmm. you know, me being, a you know, an athlete, uh, you know, me being a, in my landscaping company, I had a, a more militant way of leadership, right? A very mm-hmm. hierarchy, very centralized, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very militant way. And, I, and honestly, it worked inside the landscaping company, right? You had foremen. They gave direction to the people and people responded with a yes, sir, kind of military type mentality. You get into our business today, you have like highly intellectual people that have you know MBAs and, and, and high levels of education. And, and outside of that are people outside of work that want a balance of life and things right. like that. Right. And so, you know, changing to this descent, more of a decentralized type uh, business has allowed us to evolve the way we think about our people. And, you know, we've won, talk about awards, we've won awards the past two years around, you know, best employer of the year. And so the change in mentality there for, and it was really, you know, not to get too deep, I guess, but it, it was certainly a, an inward look at myself, at the way I was being a leader to, to the people that worked here at EPI and, and really changing the way I thought about that. And that all happened in the past couple of years. Right. How did that epiphany come to you? I mean, were you having turnover? What were you seeing? Yeah, we just that, saw. That so you, through the, we, you know, we, we pivoted through the pandemic in about 60 days. We created a whole program and, and launched it and then tweaked it the rest of the year. We wanted to get something out that was high quality, but didn't keep people waiting around to earn this credential. And obviously during the pandemic, many business owners had thought about exit. And so the topic became even hotter than it is, you know, it became the probably hottest it's been in a while. And mm-hmm. so people were wanting the edu- and education. But in doing that, and then kind of looking around in the aftermath of that, you could just tell the team looked tired uh, and the team looked beat up. And it really, and yeah, turnover had started to happen for the first time in, in a while. And I can remember, you know, in all honesty, you know, sitting in this group, this group that this, this group work activity that we were doing and people saying like, yeah, man, like what you didn't realize at the time is that many of us were, even though we're very loyal to our customers and to each other and to you guys as owners, you know, we were pretty beat beat up and we were all kind of looking at something different. And so that was the epiphany. It was the aha moment having like key and, and, and honestly, some of the people in our business have been very close to me for years, like 20 years. Uh, my director yeah. of business development was the best man at my wedding. And, and, and so, you know, looking at people that were very loyal and that I trust and saying, yeah, man, we got to change the way we think. It's got to be much more people oriented and less revenue and, and, and product driven. And that kind of, you know, that slowdown during the pandemic to say, look, you know, I really don't know if we're we're hitting all the objectives that we need to make. And so, yeah, that yeah. that was kind of the epiphany. And then we immediately started to change. Uh, and yeah, and all those directors are still here. And, and most of the people that were here at that time are still here. And we've been able to add some significant talent since then as well. Mm-hmm. So tell me about your talent strategy. Yeah, it's interesting because we're hiring right now. I was on like two mm-hmm. interviews before that, uh, before our, our, our podcast today. So mm-hmm. yeah, so I think that obviously we're going to hire based on talent, right? So we're looking that first, which kind of gives you the initial qualification. Uh, I rely on my team to do that. I try not to look at any resumes because I'm hiring on culture. So by the time they get to the second interview, we're really looking, we really have a conversation around probably three things. One, where do you want to go in your career? Like, what are your ambitions? Why are you coming into this role? Do you want to stay in this role? Do you want to grow up? Do you want to grow out? Like, mm-hmm. how, how do you, good, where good. do you want to go? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. being a growth-oriented organization, it's not just about the company. It's also about how do we attract people that want challenge and want advancement. Mm-hmm. The other thing mm-hmm. is we talk about core values right out of the gate. Something that we reestablished and rewrote during that time that we made this big transition during the pandemic. And so we try to stick to those core values quite a bit as well and, and, and see if we share them. And then I typically have a conversation about what they do outside of the business. I think too many business owners and, and business leaders think that like you come to work and it's about work and then, you know, it's not mm-hmm, about personal mm-hmm. or don't take the business home with you. It's not, you know, it, it, it's just business. It's not personal. I think it's all meshed together. Like if you're having a really crappy day at home at 8 a.m. before you leave to come to the office, you're probably going to have a crappy day and bring some of that to work. And if you just got reamed at work and you're having a crappy day, you're probably bringing that home. So why not all just let's all one. So let's all just talk about it and let's know ourselves 
not just who we are as the marketing director or the administrative mm-hmm. assistant, mm-hmm. but let's know ourselves as, hey, I'm Scott Snyder and this is who I am. I'm part entrepreneur, but I'm also X, Y, and Z. So I try to get to know that kind of right out of the gate. And if all of that message meshes together and they have the talent that we need for the particular skill set that we need for the job, then we kind of say, you know, here it is. But it's a slow process. Like we have maybe like four rounds of interviews. So we'd rather hire quite slow than, than have to hire fast and, and either fire or, or, or part way. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, yeah. I would say it's pretty intentional is how I would describe yeah. it. Good. Well, and, and I couldn't agree more. Right. So, you know, you, you, you know, the, the last thing that you said, one of my best coaches said to me a long time ago, you don't have business problems. You have personal problems that show up in your business. Exactly. Right. right. So, and that's exactly what you said. So, and, and I'm also hearing from you what sounds very much to be a culture of feedback, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We call it putting it on the table, right? Too much stuff, I think, go under the table. Just put it on the table. And if you have the right structure and environment, you're likely going to have a pretty respectful conversation about it. Correct. So anybody at any level can talk to anybody at any other level without being worried of for fear for their job or being thrown under a bus or something else, correct? Absolutely correct. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, that's super, super, super important. So, and I love that, you know, you said you you uh, try to avoid looking at resumes before you interview people. And I love that because, y- you know, the expectation would be if if you're interviewing somebody, you know, they should already have the right skill set, right? But the reality is that, that over 50% of people leave their jobs. I mean, either they leave or their jobs leave them, right? They, they, they leave their employment in the first 18 months for reasons having nothing to do with their skills and abilities. Exactly. Yeah, I read a great book that kind of changed my perspective on hiring too. It's by the Gary Ridge, who's the CEO of uh, WD-40. And uh, he wrote a sh- really short book that's called Don't Mark My Paper, Show Me How to Get an A. And I related to that because I, you know, I laughed earlier with you. I was kind of a crappy student starting my business at, in, in my geometry class. I was like mm-hmm. a, a C student. And what my mm-hmm. frustration always was, was that, you know, I'd get the C and they just mark it up in red and give me a C. But then I was like, okay, I guess I can go get tutoring. But can I just ask you like, okay, I know this is wrong, but how could it have been right? Like, what should I right. have thought a little bit differently? And I think that uh, a lot of performance reviews and companies are kind of like that, like high marks, low marks, like here it is, do these types of things and go on. And, but you don't go like deep. So when we do our review process, we've tra- copied a lot of what Gary does in, in his, uh, and it's become a part of that culture. We kind of share that too as we start to to, to hire. So yeah. there's, you know, you're when you're reviewed, whether you're in the hiring process or whether you're actually hired in the performance review process, you're reviewed often. So twice a year we do performance reviews. Plus you have weekly one-on-ones with your manager, and then we all we're looking at not just the roles and responsibilities. We actually rate you on your core values, and if you're living your core values. And give you examples of that. And then we talk about future stuff. What are your learning opportunities? What are your goals and objectives future looking? And so, yeah, I think total, total, I don't think people really get ahead of the game if you're having like meetings after the meeting, right? So you're going to have a meeting and then everybody else is going to go talk about something different or your boss is going to tell you something different after the person that just told you what to do is doing something. So I just creates drama that's unneeded. and, And that goes back to just putting it on the table. Well, and it's, and it's, you know, it's interesting because I too was a mediocre student. Yeah. Um, and not because I wasn't smart. Right. And, you know, I mean, I come from a family of super, super smart and highly educated people, PhDs, attorneys, doctors. I mean, you know, so it's not like all of a sudden I was born an idiot. Right. (laughs) right. So, (laughs) you know, but it's interesting because I think it's, it's the same, you know, as I've had these conversations over, you know, since we started this podcast close, you know, it's been about 16 months now, you know, the work that I do with companies, I think, why are they not educating students in that way? Right. I mean, to learn what it is as a leader, it's your responsibility to have your employees flourish. Exactly right. Right? I mean, there's succession planning, there's, you know, leadership development, there's employee development, there's all sorts of things that go into that, right? To, to, to helping your people flourish. Why are they not doing that in the schools? And that's a whole separate conversation. But I look back on my, my own education and think, I I don't know if I, I just think I was bored. 
I know. Right. Maybe I belonged in, belonged in gifted and talented. I don't yeah. know. I mean, a lot of people who are super smart are mediocre students until they discover better education or G&T programs yeah, or something sure. like that. Because those programs are specifically designed to help the kid who's bored right. do better. Exactly right. Yeah. Right? And that's, you know, that's what I'm hearing and listening to you because it was, again, I, you know, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't born an idiot. Right. I've been an entrepreneur since I was a kid. Right. Yeah. So I think I just didn't get what I needed as an entrepreneur. Yeah. That I needed a different way of being educated. And of course, that many years ago, I mean, I think it, it may, it's certainly improved. That gap has, yeah, has, has closed some, but I still think we have a long way to go in the educational system to make sure that those kids that are, you know, that need something different can get something a little bit different from an educational standpoint. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think like incorporating case studies or incorporating application, I think is, is critical. Right. I think at least from my perspective, when I was there, understanding the why behind what I was doing was important to me. And maybe that's why I got bored is that mm -hmm. like I could do these math problems. I could learn about the science, this literature, whatever it is. But like what, why I need to know why first it's kind of like educating business owner and exit planning, right? You just go to the owner and say, Hey, let's get right. you into retirement. They're going to say, well, a, I don't want to do that. And B, why does it matter? I think that's why many owners in our country today don't exit because no one told them the why behind it, why exactly it's important that we do that. Right. Uh, and they find out too late. But yeah, I, I think that, yeah, we do have in the American education system in our grade schools, elementary schools, our high schools, just a particularly, yeah, I think it's a, a different way of learning. Is, is, it's probably time. We'll see it because naturally it's going to just evolve. But, but nonetheless, yeah, improvement is needed. So, so Scott, what would you say is the competitive nature of your industry? I mean, you know, I get, I get, I cannot tell you, I, I know I complain about this all the time, the amount of spam I get on both LinkedIn and email. And a lot of that spam is, hi, you know, we do this and we'll help you exit. And I'm like, you don't even know anything about my business. How could you possibly do that? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. I think the competitive advantage, particularly for a certified exit planning advisor, is methodology and network. Mm. So I think that knowing their role within the system, right, within the process and knowing enough to have a, a holistic and deeper conversation with an owner, but also knowing enough to say, OK, I can see this and it's time to bring in this particular advisor. So I think the competitive advantage for that is that many business owners have an attorney and a CPA. Those two people mm -hmm. are, are likely there. Both Correct. primarily concentrated on the business. They likely mm -hmm. don't have a financial advisor or financial advisor that's deeply involved because most of their wealth is in their business. So they might be talking to someone, but they're not involved long in long-term planning. They might have a consultant, but probably not, not one that's concentrated on value, but probably people concentrate on growing revenue or profitability. And so I think that the competitive advantage for the SEPA is I bring this thought process that's holistic that makes you more successful year over year, more profitable, keeping better people, uh, putting in better systems, optimizing everybody's time, while also concentrated on long-term strategic value. So I think that thought process is a different conversation that they bring to the table for an owner that sparks and intrigues their interest. And I think that they say, look, we also come with this robust team of people that all think about income and value, that think about right. business and personal even though we might not directly all work on that business and personal, we all kind of understand it and are marching towards it in kind of one synergistic way. Uh, but so I think that's a competitive advantage for the exit planning professional that particularly is, is, is the SEPA. Right. And, and is there any, would you say there's any, and if so, what is it, outdated advice being disseminated in that industry? Outdated advice. Yeah. I think that I just read an article about this actually, an article that somebody wrote that I just, had to disagree with. So the, the thing that always yeah. pops up is that I think a lot of people uh, speak to owners as if they need to identify what exit option they need and go and walk there first, like a roadmap. So like I own an RV, take plenty of RV trips. I throw the place that I want to go to in the Google Maps, my location, and it routes me to it. Kind of like somebody mm -hmm. saying today that an owner needs to understand how they want to exit their business. We'll, com we'll complete a plan to get there. If it's family, we'll just transition it to the kids. You know, if it's a private equity, we'll build a, right. we'll build a company that's private equity ready. And I just don't think that's the case. It's not like a Google Maps and an RV trip really at all. First off, about 66% of owners 
don't even understand all of their exit options. So how can That's you right. possibly tell me where I want to go? And I don't actually really know where That's I want right. to go. Or yeah, I might know and, and don't realize that that's actually the wrong mm -hmm. place to go. So we kick that can way down to the road and we say, look, whether you're 25 years old just starting out or 65 years old trying to more immediately exit, let's just build a sound company. A company that's highly valuable, transferable, ready and attractive so they can sell to anybody at any time uh, along the way or be planned or be uh, kind of ready for these contingent, these unplanned events that happen of death, disability, divorce, whatever those might be. And so we say, look, incorporate exit planning into your business strategy. It's frankly one and the same. And the other, I'll probably round that out with saying, I think too many owners and frankly, too many advisors tell owners that there's one bite of an apple. Like Scott, you'll grow this company for 10 years. You'll sell it to a, a, a private equity group. That's mm -hmm. one bite of the apple. I feel that owners should have multiple bites of the apple over like a five or 10 year exit strategy. Because if you think about it, the benefit of doing the value acceleration methodology is that you create a company that's highly valuable. So it's going to be more valuable than it is today. So we mm -hmm. call it the Pac-Man eating the owner's wealth. So they only have <laughs> yeah. some wealth outside of their business, but as sure. they grow their company from 8 million to 10 million to 20 million mm -hmm. and don't diversify the other stuff, it just closes it in. So it actually makes your personal financial portfolio way more riskier. So we say, look, let's take a little chunk, chips off the table along and use a hybrid exit option. Let's sell some of the management to this you know, this year, maybe 20%, 10% to each, you know, to your two close directors. Then, you know, another buddy of the Apple comes five years down the road where you take some of your shows, shares and sell to a, a private equity company where they take majority control. And then eventually in the next five years, you sell the whole thing. So not only are you growing a company that's more valuable, so your shares are growing or your shares value is growing, but you're also diversifying your whole portfolio as well, because the the business is just another asset inside that financial portfolio, likely mm -hmm. your largest, probably your most passionate as a business owner, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, just one inside a, a, a class of many. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you're, you know, you're, you're in the process of interviewing some people right now. Where, where do you see like over the next year you growing to up to, you know, you're at 16 right now. Uh, what's your growth going to look like over the next year? Yeah, we'll probably be, we have this. So in true exit planning form, right? We're all about process and mapping. We practice what we preach. So uh, we, do, we have a hierarchy chart hanging right outside my office and it takes us yep. to about 36 employees by the end of 2024. So we okay. will significantly grow over the next even couple of years. Maybe we won't hit all 36, but we'll certainly hit probably between 25 and 30, depending how we grow and how we optimize our, our systems and processes. Right. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, but yeah, so we're. We are, we're growing. We'll, we'll likely add another three people by the end of the year. So that'll get us mm -hmm. up to that 20 person mark. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll go from there, but we'll probably be between 30 and maybe that top, top mark of 36 by the end of, of uh, end of 2024 uh, right. as we grow and mature. Fantastic. So if somebody wanted to get into the exit planning sure. business, what kind of advice would you give them? So if you're a professional advisor, I would say, number one, you should have a, a, a process. So you need a process and a framework. You need, you need to have organizing principles. And two, uh, you need to know who your network is because you're sure as heck not going to be able to do it all yourself. So you're going to need other experts right. along the way, functional people that come in and, out of the, in and out of the equation and a core team that sticks around for the entire team. Uh, I would say lastly, kind of a great question that you had earlier for me, you have to be prepared to roll up your sleeves and intentionally grow. Just because you right. walked into the exit planning space doesn't mean that you walked in and that you are the expert. If you're, it's kind of like growing a business. So if you're an advisor listening to the show, you started your financial advisory practice 25 years ago, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you've probably been evolving the way you're thinking in your company over the years. But for the most part, the way we've done financial planning is probably the way we've done financial planning, right. just like accounting and right. legal. Exit planning is ever evolving and something new. So not only are you going to be evolving the way you think now as an advisor, but you're going to be growing something new inside of your practice. So you should be ready, willing, and able to invest time, money, and resources into your firm to embrace the exit planning concepts and process that you come with. But I would say process, network, and the ability to evolve by investing time, money, and resources into your firm are three things that you're going to critically need to really make an impact in, in this space. Mm -hmm. Got it. What's your day-to-day -day look like as a leader, Scott? Uh, so, yeah. So my day-to-day -day is, is really surrounded around people. So whether that is doing something like this, a, a nice show where I'm getting to meet new people and, 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 mm -hmm. and talk to people, or whether it's more internally working with our, our my directors here all the way down to, mm -hmm. to their teams or working with 
customers and partners. So most of my day is, and it's not the typical business owner answer where it's putting out fires. Sure, right. I, you know, we certainly provide a solution to put out fires, but it's really forward thinking. It's being the visionary for the business, thinking about what's next, new verticals, new markets, new products. And then that's where I, I think my time is spent the best. After that, I do a lot of writing and speaking, um, you know, where you know, I write for the Forbes Business Council. I write for Intuit. And um, I spent a lot of time producing content, but that is for the most part the day to day. Yeah, fantastic. So, um, if somebody listening to this is thinking, "This is, I'd like, I'd like to work for this company," I, I think what they're doing is pretty awesome. Yeah. What should they do? <laughs> uh, I would say easiest spot to stop is just go on LinkedIn, type in Scott Snyder, Snyder with an I, and you can get my contact information there or see the stuff that's on my mind. Right? I try to share it at least every other day, content, tools, general thoughts, where allows people to kind of evolve and think. Or you can go to earnsepa.com and see our company and, and, and kind of see what we're all about there. And SEPA is C-E-P-A. Gotcha. Okay, fantastic. Is there anything that uh, I didn't I missed asking you in this conversation? No, I think, uh, a great conversation that's, I think, truly focused around what's the journey to success. So I, I, I like it's not the, the traditional exit planning conversation that we have, It's but it was very yeah. good. No, I think you covered it all. Great. Appreciate it. Well, Scott cool. Snyder, president of Exit Planning Institute. Thanks for being with me today. It was a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.